0: Welcome to the 222nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion of the opioid crisis and the pandemic with bioethicist Travis Reeder. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, February 17th, 2021, there are 2,425,970 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 489,748 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 486,321 reported yesterday. In Baltimore County, Maryland, there are 1,231 deaths from COVID-19. The way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is... Too close to home, minister who conducts funerals for overdose victims, loses his Own son to poison drugs. This was written by Lori Colbert, appeared in the Vancouver Sun February 13th, 2021. Eli Cooley Morris was baptized in the downtown East Side's landmark First United Church in 1988. He died next door at the Hazelwood Hotel, nearly 32 years later, another victim of British Columbia's poisoned drug supply. His father, Reverend Barry Morris, was the minister at the church when Eli was born. Today, Morris works at the Longhouse Council of Native Ministry in East Vancouver, where in the past year he has presided over about 20 funerals or memorials for drug users, many of them young adults. Supporting grief-stricken families during British Columbia's overdose crisis has always been emotional for the longtime minister, whose small congregation includes many indigenous, metis, and other residents of the church's working-class neighborhood, but that has intensified since the loss of his only child on January 15th of last year. It was particularly hard when I began to do funerals where other deaths involved the nature of the same death that took my son, said Morris, who avoids mentioning Eli so he doesn't take attention away from the person he is memorializing. They were tough funerals because of the overdose situation, and it was all I could do, to be honest with you, not to dwell on it myself. It was hard because on some occasions it was all I could do not to talk about his death as a way to try to communicate a degree of empathy. The British Columbia Coroner's Service recently announced the poisoned drug supply killed 1,716 British Columbians in 2020, nearly five deaths a day, almost double 2019's death count of 984. This grim milestone makes 2020 the most lethal year on record for overdoses, largely due to pandemic restrictions that forced people to use alone and closed the U.S. border, which made the drug supply more toxic. Since 2016, when a provincial state of emergency was declared, more than 6,700 British Columbians have succumbed to poisoned drugs. Chief Coroner Lisa LaPointe called for urgent change this week. There's a lot that needs to be done, Mr. Morris said. Eli's death brought Reverend Morris a new perspective on the immense loss overdose victims families endure. endured helped him come to terms with the stark personal nature of death. One of the difficulties he had was he was kind of a popular kid at Hastings School, said Morris. He was good athletically, and when he got to Vancouver Tech with four times the number of students, he still made it on the basketball team, but no longer was he the star, Morris said. I could kind of guess his thoughts and feelings that he saw it as kind of a failure or a letdown or a loss of status. Eli made different friends, started smoking pot, and struggled in class. He switched high schools three times, including an expensive private school, before dropping out around grade 10. Therapy and counseling didn't help. Neither later did various drug treatment programs. Eli started selling and using harder drugs, and Morris felt ashamed. He loved his son, but struggled to find the right way to help him. Sadly, Morris recalled having his best interactions with Eli during his sporadic stints in jail when he would write to his son and visit him regularly. At least I knew where I could find him. And then I would help him out a little bit by getting books ordered. He would work on his song lyrics because he really developed a very early and continuing interest in rap music, Morris said. Several months before his death, his parents flew Eli to Nova Scotia for a residential drug treatment program, which he completed. My hope was built up once again for the millionth time, and I corresponded with him at least weekly, and he responded about half that time. Upon his return to British Columbia, his father said Eli was arrested on some outstanding warrants. He went to jail where he also remained sober. He was released in January of 2020, but was unable to fight the strong lure of the drugs. He got a room at the Hazelwood Hotel, a supported housing project just down the street from First United Church. A few days after moving in, he overdosed while using alone in his room. The coroner's report said there were lethal levels of fentanyl in his system. Morris got the news from the police officers who knocked on his apartment door. He was hit with unbearable grief and a parent's guilt over what could have been done differently. Endemic restrictions are not only leading overdose numbers to rise, they're making it far more difficult for families and friends to gather to say goodbye. Level of isolation and loneliness is enormous, Morris says. He's also concerned about the effect of shutting down churches, especially for vulnerable congregations who often rely on the weekly guidance offered by their pastors. Our small service on a Sunday morning is very, very much like a support group and even has some of the features of an AA group or a recovery from addictions group because we always use the serenity prayer and we always pass the feather and have conversations. We encourage people to just basically check in as to how they're feeling, he said. This church also typically provides space for a half dozen support group meetings each week, but that has been reduced to three during the pandemic. Not everyone has embraced online alternatives, and he fears the lack of human contact and basic pleasures in life could cause addicts to use more. While vaccines promise a possible end to COVID restrictions, there's no solution in sight yet for the poisoned drug supply. And so families will continue to grieve, and Morris will continue to officiate at funerals. And he will continue his difficult practice of not mentioning Eli's name during services for other lives lost to the drug crisis. But in private meetings with families, he does open up about Eli's death. He hopes that at least provides some comfort. Informally, I would bring it up if the people came here and said, Look, we've lost our loved one, lost my son, lost my daughter, lost my partner, and I just don't know how to handle it. And I would say, I know. I understand that too. Okay, we're going to turn to the conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest. Really been looking forward to this conversation. Travis N. Reeder, PhD, is a bioethicist, philosopher, and author, currently serving as the director of the Master of Bioethics degree program and a research scholar at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. He also has secondary appointments in the departments of philosophy and health policy and management, as well as in the Center for Public Health Advocacy. In recent years, virtually all of his attention has turned to the ethical and policy issues raised by pain, opioids, and America's problem with the two. In 2019, he published In Pain, a bioethicist's personal struggle with opioids in which he combines narrative from his own experience as a pain and opioid therapy patient with his experience in philosophy and bioethics to identify, explain, and attempt to solve some of the most profound questions raised by pain and addiction medicine. Travis Reeder, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start out the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation
1: is looking like there today. Uh, So I'm just outside Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, My faculty appointment's at Johns Hopkins uh, and the downtown East Baltimore campus. I live just outside the city. Maryland is uh, like much of the country. We're doing better. We're trending in the right direction. Uh, New case numbers are in the hundreds instead of thousands. Um, Daily deaths are in the tens. The thing that I find really striking, though, is that um, if you look back at the last year, we have come down from the monstrous peak that we encountered after the holidays and over the winter, but we are still at about the point we were last May during the kind of initial panic, right? And that's pretty close to kind of where we are as a country, too. We are doing really well, given where we came from and what we need to do. But like we're just not anywhere close to something like having it under control. So uh, my daughter's scheduled to go back to school hybrid uh, in March, so Governor Larry Hogan had indicated his opening plan, our county is complying. And so uh, it's a staggered start, but my, my seven-year-old is supposed to start back to school March 15th and um, I'm a little nervous about it, to be honest. Yeah,
0: I, I I feel that and I can empathize with that. We went through that same situation where we, I was most recently living in the United States in Princeton, New Jersey. And that first day back at school, somebody's gonna write about this, maybe you'll write about this, that. Um, mm. You know, we always get excited as parents for, uh, for September, for that first day back, but the first day back post COVID has its own excitements, frankly, mm-hmm. photos, some of the same sort of stagecraft of being excited to uh, go back and for kids to get excited, but it brings with it a lot of trepidation for sure.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not particularly concerned about her. She's seven. The the science seems to tell us that, you know, she's very, very likely to be safe, um, I'm a little bit older, um, so not at, in the highest risk group, but um, yeah, I and mean, as, as we will likely talk about today, I've had my encounters with the healthcare system. I understand medical trauma, and uh, I, I take COVID very, very seriously. I don't want this disease. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a roll of the die. I'm super excited to take. So
0: There was another thing I wanted to
1: ask you about just because of your placement there in Baltimore
0: County. I'm fascinated um, by the politics of that region multiple states sort of coming together there. You're just outside of DC and then you have the, the politics with a Republican governor and traditionally democratic county governance and city governance. How's that working right now in terms of coordination <laughs> among those different, um, the different constituencies of voters, but also the different, um, the different governmental entities there?
1: you know i would say uh that the where i live is pretty deeply blue and so it is so larry hogan the existence of larry hogan is fairly interesting right because uh he's a republican governor in this not just blue really quite blue you know dc adjacent uh area but maryland isn't all baltimore and baltimore suburbs right we have the eastern shore um we go over to west virginia so it's not a monolith. There are definitely divisions within Maryland. And um, one of my colleagues, uh, who I won't out by name, but one of my colleagues says, Larry Hogan may as well be a Democrat, which other other of my colleagues take pretty serious umbrage to. Um, but, but the point I take it is that he says in the moments of crisis, you know, kind of where it counts, he says the right things from a Democrat's perspective. You know, so he... Has uh, been from the beginning of the COVID uh, pandemic. He's talked about following the science. He's worked closely with Johns Hopkins. Um, a lot of my colleagues, right? Not necessarily people I work with very closely, but they are on this task force that advises him, right? So the the connection between Johns Hopkins and really world class scientists and um, his his uh, office is pretty tight. There was a time in which a Republican
0: who was uh, willing to engage with Democratic voters in a serious way and experts might have used that as the basis for a, a a real bipartisan run at the presidency. Uh, maybe times have changed a little bit. Larry Hogan's a little bit of a man out of time, I think, in
1: that in that regard, perhaps. Uh, I th- I think he's still going to give the presidency a run. Yeah, I expect we'll see him in twenty twenty four. That's that's the the common wisdom around here. Okay. Well, um, let's turn to conversation, um, on
0: opioids first. And I wanted to, you've been very busy through this time, right? And and your answer was pretty straightforward. It's catastrophic. You said every one of the risk factors for taking drugs and every one of the components of recovery have been impacted. I'd like to dive into this with you first on the risk factor side. How has COVID made the risk factors for opioid addiction
1: worse? There are lots of different ways to think about it, right? But primarily, one of the things that I like to say to people is people take drugs for reasons, right? We we kind of talk about drugs as if they are um, mystical substances that get their hooks into you, and you know, no rational person would take them. But then, once you do, you turn into a zombie or a robot. Like all of that is nonsense, right? Uh, we all, almost all take drugs. I don't know what's in your cup, but it may well be a drug. If you're like me, and it's morning for you, right? Um, you know, caffeine's a drug. Uh, we go to the doctor and we get painkillers, and we get blood thinners, and we get heart medication. So the first thing, just to note is that people take drugs for reasons. Now, when we talk about the sorts of drugs, recreational drugs, or sometimes called drugs of abuse, right? which abuse isn't great language, but the sorts of drugs that cause addiction, that are causing us trouble right now, one of the things they do is they tend to spark euphoria. So not all of them, you have um, kind of transcendental drugs uh, like psilocybin, right, psychedelics, and um, they're not necessarily euphoric drugs, but opioids, um, cocaine, methamphetamine, right, these are euphoric drugs. And so they do something for you. Now, of course, opioids are also um, analgesics, They're, they're pain medications. And so here's just a bunch of totally reasonable, very good reasons to take opioids. Uh, being in physical pain, excellent reason. People take oxycodone, IV morphine, right? You show up in the hospital after a car accident, you're probably getting pumped full of morphine or fentanyl or hydromorphone. Um, so physical pain. But it turns out they're not just good for physical pain, they're really good for emotional pain. They're good for treating trauma, right? Um, they are euphoric. Uh, different people describe it in different ways. Uh, I, having been on lots of opioids uh, for for some extended time, um, I I'm pretty sympathetic to the wraps you with a warm blanket sort of description. You know, mm-hmm. my memory of opioids is sinking into my couch, finally comfortable, escaping a world of pain, and feeling warm and safe and tight. Right. Um, so now, think about also they, the the euphoria is not just warm blanket. It's this escape from bad things. Right. It's uh, it can be joy, pleasure. It's fun. It's something to do. So. It's also like an escape from boredom, right? Right. Um, It alleviates stress, anxiety. You get the idea. Lots of reasons to take drugs. Now think about the pandemic. We have a time when we were already in a raging addiction and overdose crisis. Um, You know, 70,000 people died in 2019, 71,000 from drug overdose. It's absolutely catastrophic. So the drug supply is there the kind of um, sensibility to reach out to drugs, to self-medicate, to find something, you know, worth doing uh, to to bring joy like that was already there in a lot of communities. And now people lose their jobs. Um, They're facing poverty. They're facing potential homelessness. They're facing hopelessness. There's an additional stressor. There's constant anxiety, right? I don't know about you, I haven't felt great this last year and I'm incredibly privileged, right? I have a home, a secure job, my partner does. And I have felt the stress and the anxiety and the sorts of things that might lead you to say self-medicate. So now just run that on steroids for people who don't have any of the privileges or securities, right? So the the first point is that all of the reasons that we all have to take drugs are just completely ramped up during COVID-19. And that by itself, Makes it a powder keg, right? But we add in this feature that our primary tool against the disease is social distancing. Our primary tool against Mm -hmm. the disease is isolation. And there's this saying among lots of recovery groups, right? The opposite of addiction is in sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And some people like that and some people hate that. But what most people seem to indicate, to endorse it gets right is, a really good way to help stay in recovery is to not be alone, like with all of your stress and trauma and anxiety and whatever it is that you are using uh, drugs to either medicate or to escape. So yeah, it's it's a time when recovery groups stop meeting, right, or they turn to electronic form like this and it didn't work for some people, so they dropped off and there's no one there in the parking lot to grab them and say, hey, are you okay? Because there's no parking lot after a Zoom meeting, Mm -hmm. right? And so there's just all of these societal cracks to fall through. It became harder to get medication. Not everybody has access to telehealth. Not every office rolled out the telehealth very well, right? Everything that could make it hard to avoid drugs, to enter recovery, to stay in recovery, especially if it's new and fragile, everything got worse all at the same time. So here you had
0: um, a recipe for disaster for people who um, maybe were... Um, already uh, who weren't addicts yet, um, that loneliness, as you said, the many different reasons that people might use drugs, but then also people who are already in recovery has been made difficult as well because of the very remedy that was provided to us by the health community. One, I think we, I would endorse social distance, of course, and that's exactly the wrong thing, as you're describing it, or many would say the wrong thing in, in terms of recovery. One little piece of that I want to just follow up was also maybe the complication that for for people um, who are in recovery, who are receiving some sort of drug therapy as part of their recovery. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit as well. I mean, just the logistics of how people have or have not had access to drugs through this time has been a little bit mystifying, I think, to me.
1: it's It's been very hard. It was very hard at the beginning. It stayed pretty hard. Um, So, you know, there are two primary medications used to treat opioid addiction in particular. So, you know, the fact that America's uh, one of America's major struggles is with opioids is actually good in one sense because we have very effective medications for the treatment of opioid use disorder. And so the two primary ones are methadone and buprenorphine, which are themselves opioids. They're full agonist treatments, but they help people get cravings and withdrawal under control so they can kind of concentrate on their recovery, hold down jobs, you know, try to, to fight to get their families back if those are the sorts of things they need etc so methadone buprenorphine they cut all-cause mortality by somewhere between like 50 and 75 percent the only medications to have anything like that somewhat some complication with the drug called naltrexone which is the opposite it, it blocks opioids but um that's harder to get on because you have to be Abstinent to use naltrexone. Don't have to be abstinent to use buprenorphine methadone. Okay, so that's the background. We have two really effective medications to help people in a recovery and stay that way. The problem is they are heavily regulated. So methadone is the old one, right? And so methadone is subject to federal regulations, such that only SAMHSA licensed um, methadone clinics is what they tend to be called. So particular um, healthcare sites. Can dispense methadone and they tend to start patients who haven't built up a kind of trust and rapport with the office or with the clinician that you have to come in every day to get your dose and and a clinician witnesses you taking as so you drink it from them and you leave and then as you kind of gain a relationship you can sometimes get take-home doses but that builds up over time all right so now we can already see one problem is that um most methadone patients are going in every day or every couple few days and so that's going to become harder. Uh, buprenorphine is the other medication. it's the slightly newer one about the, the uh, newer one and it's also governed by something called an X waiver and so X waivers are what clinicians have to get to be able to prescribe buprenorphine, but it can be done outpatient by someone who has this waiver. And so here too, you can get longer take home doses kind of as you build relationships. So one week, two weeks, four weeks. What happened at the beginning of the pandemic is immediately it was recognized. So all that stuff that I said, like that was not insightful, right? Everybody who works on drugs knew this is an absolute powder keg waiting to explode. We have to do something. And so the government uh, loosened some of these restrictions so that patients could get more take home doses. But you can just imagine how that sort of rollout works, right? It worked well in some places, less well in other places. Clinicians were often confused about how to enforce these different orders. And so this was just yet one more place where people could fall through the cracks. If if going every day to get your methadone was working for you, that's gone now, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a pain. So now people in drug policy community are kind of hoping, like, we got rid of those rules. Like, let's stay rid of them because people can be responsible and have more take-home doses, but it was the disruption, right? Disruption Mm -hmm. in recovery is problematic, right? It's just one more thing that can screw up sort of fragile recovery. And because um, people who are in recovery, maybe
0: those who are just entering recovery, setting up those patterns, those relationships are, are really crucial, right? And they're really fragile, particularly
1: at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, you know, the medications themselves are very, very good. So there's there's significant and growing evidence that just having access to methadone and buprenorphine increases odds of survival and long-term recovery pretty significantly. And so even if everything else goes away, like just having those meds is really good. But that's the one thing that's threatened... When your access to the medication is unstable, right? And so hard enough if you know part of what you're really hanging on to is your relationship with your therapist or a social worker who's helping you found, find housing and work, et cetera. Like those things obviously got harder and moved to electronic, and not everyone had smartphones, et cetera. But just getting the pill or just getting the drink, right, like the, the methadone cup, like those things changed too, and those are really important tools for fighting the overdose epidemic.
0: Just yesterday, I spoke with the political scientist Fiona Anciano, who's in uh, South Africa in Cape Town, and she was describing the um, government response there. One of the unexpected things from her perspective is that they banned sales of alcohol and cigarettes as well, but they banned alcohol sales. And the rationale that was given, um, as she understood it, was that there was concern that people were. Um, able to drink freely in the time of social distance and lockdown that it would increase abuse Um, and it's had variable impacts from her some people have reported hey our families are closer than ever Uh, you know partner who usually is at the bar is actually at home Um, but undoubtedly there's the other side of that story which hasn't been written which is exactly what you've been describing which are those therapeutic communities that come together around recovery are dissolving i was fascinated by that as as using the pandemic as a moment to address this other uh concern in society i don't know if you'd heard that story or had thought about you know bans and restriction in the midst of this disaster as a sort of secondary disaster
1: absolutely secondary disaster i mean i would be incredibly concerned with that policy so at the beginning of the pandemic here lots of people were talking about what constitutes an essential business during shutdowns right And I was one of the people shouting really loudly at anyone who would listen. Alcohol uh, stores are an essential business. And the reason is not because you want to necessarily have every house of people who just are bored overflowing with alcohol, um, but because people who already have a problem, if you already have an addiction to alcohol, uh, here's what's going to happen if you're cut off from your supply one you're going to face withdrawal and with alcohol in particular withdrawal can be fatal right you can actually die from alcohol withdrawal and two um when people have an addiction the the disorder that they're struggling with is characterized by acting even in the face of negative consequences and that means that they are not likely to just throw up their hands and say i guess i don't get alcohol they're likely to try to go find it somewhere, right? And so usually when you criminalize something, when you take away an above board market um, and there's a population of people who already have an addiction to that, you just create a black market. Like that's the immediate thing that's gonna happen. And it's unregulated, it's less safe. Um, So I was very much against the idea that we would shut down alcohol stores in the United States.
0: Just want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Travis Reeder today about opioid addiction in the middle of the pandemic. You can get your questions in, just put them into YouTube live chat, or you can put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster. And um, Travis, I, I wanted to just sort of shift over. You've written really powerfully about your own experience with opioid addiction. And I, I wanted to talk with you about that. And I specifically wanted to ask you how you might see that experience now somewhat differently if you do through the lens of this pandemic year that we've lived through and, and particularly everything you were just describing about the, the struggles that people face, which have been multiplied many times over because of the reality
1: of life in lockdown. Yeah, you might. Yes, I have a few thoughts on this. Uh, so one thing that's a minor correction, but, but not to be nitpicky, you'll see that it has a point, is that I tend not to talk about my struggle with opioid addiction. I tend to talk about my struggle with opioids. Mm-hmm. And the reason is there's a distinction between physical dependence and addiction. Sometimes mm-hmm. the line gets really blurry. Um, but the the reason is not very specifically not to say I was never addicted Um, If I was, I would own it and use my platform to destigmatize. right? The point is that what I dealt with was even less difficult than dealing with what you can think of as full-blown addiction. So here's that distinction, right, for Mm -hmm. anyone who's not familiar. So physical dependence is what happens to your body whenever you're exposed to a a dependence forming drug. So a drug that um, has as one of its features that once the body becomes accustomed to it being exogenously introduced, right, from the outside... Um, Your body then kind of expects it such that if it's abruptly discontinued, you will experience negative effects typically described. It's typically called withdrawal or withdrawal syndrome. So opioids are um, very significantly dependence forming. Uh, You know, opioid withdrawal is kind of one of the. Paradigm parts of stories of you know heroin and and what you see in movies and such that there's the the person you know sweaty and shaky and kind of writing out detox and that's often presented as a picture of addiction but that by itself will happen to everybody if you um, have heroin or oxycodone or hydromorphone like any of the drugs heroin's not special and you take it around the clock at high doses your body will become physically dependent on it and if you stop you'll go into withdrawal no matter what nobody's special here, right? The thing is, very few of the people who are exposed to opioids actually develop an addiction. So 100% develop dependence, if it's high enough dose around the clock. But we don't know for sure, somewhere like one to 11, a lot of meta reviews say something like 6% of people who are exposed to opioids will develop addiction. So what's the difference? Addiction is, the continuing of a behavior, even in the face of negative consequences. Addiction is the behavioral problem that raises a puzzle for us, right? And the puzzle is everybody else looks at the person and says, um, you're you know, ruining your life, uh, you've lost your job, You know, you've lost your family, you're gonna end up homeless, and all you're getting out of it is heroin. What's wrong with you? And they keep doing it anyway. That's the paradigm example of addiction, right? Of course, the stakes need not be that high, but that's the kind of story. So what happened to me is that I was on opioids for two months, two months and change, very high doses around the clock after a motorcycle accident with a series of five reconstructive surgeries. And nobody was kind of driving the train, so to speak. And I was in shock and high and um, trying to survive a minute at a time a day at a time my partner was trying to help me survive minute at a time day at a time and when i finally had the opioids discontinued i went into just really horrific catastrophic withdrawal and that launched my new life that's what sent me down the rabbit hole of like becoming the researcher that i am today because i eventually decided to share that story to help teach doctors and people trying to enter recovery and stuff about how to talk about withdrawal how to think about it So there's the background. So we're gonna finally get to your question about COVID, right? When I had my supply abruptly discontinued and the taper was four weeks long, so I went through this hellish withdrawal for 29 days, I was able to stick it out, which is one of the ways you can tell I didn't have an addiction, right? Mm -hmm. Because in the face of negative consequences, I didn't continue the behavior, right? But I really, really wanted to. Uh, the drugs would have saved me from a massive amount of suffering. And at the end, I did actually decide to give up. The kind of long version of the story is uh, when I got to the most torturous part of just can't imagine the suffering of withdrawal. Every moment of withdrawal is the worst moment of my life. And I had my foot blown apart in a motorcycle accident, right? Withdrawal is worse than anything I've been through. And at the end, I finally decided to go back on the meds. And I did that knowing that I would never come off them. I just, I weighed the costs and benefits and said, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die and withdraw, I'm gonna kill myself if I don't. And so I'm gonna go back on the drugs, but I'll never be able to do this again. I used up all of my will, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be on oxycodone or whatever I can get my hands on for the rest of my life. Here's the thing, this was before COVID, uh, I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins. I have an incredibly supportive partner. I had a one and a half year old baby girl at the time. I was desperate to get back to my shiny new faculty job, to be a good husband again, to be a father for my baby girl. I had everything in the world. I had my job was waiting for me, so I still had income, right? I have one of the most privileged positions in society. And just facing the harms of withdrawal, just facing one component of mm-hmm. what pressures people, I was on an absolute knife's edge and it was a 50-50 slot which way I came down, right? And so now I think about time of COVID Mm -hmm. and I was already fortunate in the sorts of resources that I had, but now there are people who are cut off from whatever supports that they had, right? And so they might face all sorts of suffering similar to what I faced, much, much worse, plus the sorts of demons I didn't face, the assaults of cravings, the kind of longing, you know, for the first high, the first time you you put a needle in your arm and injected heroin instead of snorting it or eating it, right? Like, that was stuff that didn't assault me and would have made it even harder. And they're going to do it cut off from their recovery groups, maybe their family, maybe everyone and everything. Mm -hmm. That's, That's why I'm, that's what keeps me awake at night for the last year. Thank you for sharing that. Uh,
0: I, I wonder if you've thought about about you, how you might have tried to cope with it if you had been dealing with it this year. I mean, so beyond getting beyond the horror that you've just described and the difficulty of it, people are still doing it. I mean, they're, they're using whatever tools they have available to try to get through it. I wonder if you put yourself in that spot.
1: Yeah, so I gave, um, I gave a talk at a big medical conference this fall and I was very nervous about something I said um, because I didn't want to be taken it as kind of prescriptive advice, right? I'm not an MD, that wasn't my role. I was, I was giving ethics and policy advice about addiction and pain medicine. Um, and so I tried to give a caveat, but then I said, here's something that I really believe that's a little bit unpopular to say the virus isn't the only threat out there. And so when we do things like go into lockdown or shame people for not social distancing and kind of get on our high horses about like, you know, people not working as hard as, you know, some of us do about avoiding others, um, I think about the differential costs of being in isolation. And it turns out it's incredibly easy for me, even though I am absolutely going so crazy, it's, it's easy for me to never leave my house because I do my job this way, right? And nothing about my health, my mental health, my ability to survive in the future depends on me interacting with people outside. But if I did have that dependence, if I did need a support group, if I did need a physical relationship, like a, a, a being present with a therapist or a group, Um, I'm not at all sure that the rational thing to do and the moral thing to do is to insist on staying home uh, because social distancing is like a moral requirement. Uh, No, no, I think there are all sorts of risks and the risk of relapse and the risk of dying from a tainted drug supply if you do relapse is pretty darn significant too. And you have to weigh that against the risk of the pandemic and the risk of the virus. And so the long, the short version of that long answer I just gave (laughs) is, I think I'd leave my house if, if that was really important to me, right? Uh-huh. Some people recover alone by themselves. But if I needed those connections, I think I would look for a community that was like me and also said, let's sit around outside in parking lots, do our best, but also like continue the connections that have been keeping us going for however many years. Yeah, you know, that's so interesting to me
0: because we have fallen into uh, a rhetoric over this past year around um, those who have followed the science, um, uh, stayed home, uh, at worn mask and those who have flouted those, uh, requirements and, and the, the images that are shown, you know, they don't have to show an image of me or you at home or with our mask on at the grocery store. Everybody knows that one. But the alternative is that they usually show, you know, the spring break partyers in Florida or people at a Trump rally, all breathing and yelling on each other and because it's such an extreme example of uh, leaving, leaving the house in the middle of the pandemic, which you've just described as one of the many, many more nuanced understandings that we need to be bringing to why people might uh, have not followed the science, so to speak. And I used that term, intentionally used it earlier when you talked about uh, Governor Hogan. I, I wanted to sort of bring you out a little bit on that in terms of um, what do you think about that as a as a rubric for making sense of people's behavior in the midst of this pandemic? Is it okay to just follow the science? What are the complications there when we do that?
1: Yeah. So this is one of my kind of primary interests in being called COVID ethics. And it obviously intersects with the, the interest in drugs and, and pain medicine in the ways that you just described. But you know, COVID has been all hands on deck. Like The, the work of bioethicists have suddenly been like all the news all the time right vaccine allocation and the ethics of social distancing like this is our job so it's been all hands on deck and so we've all been thinking about this and so some of my colleagues uh justin bernstein brian hutler Ann barnhill ruth Faden, a uh, group of us started very early on when everything felt very urgent and started trying to think about the ethics of social distancing and then as we made it through april and may and started looking at the summer and people started talking about reopening society we started thinking about the ethics of reopening and and we ended up writing what we called a framework for reopening society. And what's funny is that, you know, months later, um, the reopening language still actually seems pretty appropriate because what the pandemic has shown us is that a really long burn crisis like this is, is a series of openings and closings of kind of selections of how we respond to distance ourselves from others. One of our main points, and I ended up uh, lead authoring a piece on this for the popular media, was we've done ourselves a really massive disservice by polarizing in the way you described, you know. So one of the things that happened is the political left kind of um, aligned with you know public health and medicine and science and and said something like, those people will determine the correct thing to do." So epidemiologists became rock stars all of a sudden, right? Um, and so all epidemiologists were fielding phone calls from NPR and whatnot, um, and infectious disease experts and public health scientists, and and so then you do you have people like not just Larry Hogan but you know Governor Cuomo and um, now we have Joe Biden probably saying very similar things. This idea that science will dictate what we should do. You know we're, we're going to follow the science we're not going to be political about it, We're political here is, is meant in a kind of derogatory way. It's kind of lowbrow political, like just partisan fighting. Um, and then in typical polarization fashion, then that kind of, you know, pushed the left further left and the right further right. And so then the idea was that, you know, we had what, oh gosh, it feels like a million years ago now, but we had like rallies of people going out to like reopen and not wear masks and kind of going against whatever the experts say, because what are we talking about here? And what's so harmful about that is that um, the truth is absolutely somewhere in the middle because the idea that the science will dictate what we should do is false on its face. Science doesn't dictate what you should do. And so a philosopher someone trained like me will say, you know how you know that? Because there's a should there. What you should do is a judgment about practical reason. It's a judgment about what we say, like normative norms and ethics and policy, which means there is no epidemiological data set that will ever tell us what we should do. The jump might be really fast in some instances, right? If, if it turns out tomorrow that a strain of COVID is breaking out that kills 98% of people that it, it infects, right? Um, right, we might jump really, really quickly. But there is a gap there that has to be filled in with ethics and moral principles. So now you get this, this high-level point about science doesn't determine what we ought to do. Science is one thing that has to be taken into consideration while we do policy. So then you might say, well, it actually is political. It's political in the elevated sense, not the low sense, right? And we have to decide like how we should weight these competing values. And now we have the competing values. It turns out that some people will struggle much more with isolation, that the health outcomes of some people will be worse under social distancing than under exposure, even with a virus out there, Mm -hmm. right? And that sort of very transparent juggling of values is I think one of the most important parts about deliberative democratic reasoning in the time of COVID. And it has gone completely over all of our heads. It's just not part of the discussion.
0: There's so much value in what you're just describing there, and one thing I just want to underline is that deliberative moment um, has only been explored, as far as I can tell, in terms of trying to understand behavior of people on the right. So uh, the the question is asked. You know, the Dr. Fauci gets up and says, "Wear a mask," and. A bunch of people say we're not going to wear a mask, and, and we're going to go to the state house in Michigan, and and we're going to protest against, it, which is a form of political, a form of politics, a form of deliberation. We might not like it; it may be violent, but that has been covered in immense detail. I think what has been covered in much less detail, as you as you point out, is um, how that deliberation works. I don't want to make it about left or right, but maybe characterized as something about the left, or just characterized among public health officials or people who say, okay, I'm I'm with that. And I think those deliberations have happened around the kitchen table, or maybe Mm -hmm. people talking to themselves in the car on the way to the supermarket. What am I going to do? I'm going to follow the rules, I'm going to wear the mask, but am I going to wear gloves? Am I going to spray things off? And people have to go back and remember the kinds of decisions we were making on a minute by minute basis back in March and April about how much we were going to follow the science. And I guess everybody either found their way through that through conversation um, or didn't and didn't tell anybody. I don't know. But I, I wonder if that struck you too, because that that sort of deliberation has been, to my mind, really unexplored.
1: Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And so it was incredibly hard, especially in America, in the Trump moment, because polarization is like the, the moment, right? Everything's about polarization. You listen to any political commentary. It's about, well, the issue is, is political, so it's decided. However many Republican senators you have, that's the way the vote's going, right? And everybody who thinks about this for more than a few seconds really must, were they honest and transparent, we're not always transparent to ourselves, but honest and transparent would surely notice that they are actually doing the deliberation. Now, Scott, you froze for me, which maybe means I froze. Did you lose some of that? No, it, you're
0: great. Okay. I just froze for a second. It's an odd feature of the internet I'm dealing with here.
1: OK. Yeah, so um, so I think what you said is really insightful. Um, I've talked to some of my graduate students recently about how to think about some things that, say, Tony Fauci said throughout the pandemic, and then um, Jerome Adams uh, said throughout the pandemic. and so. You know, early on, both Fauci and uh, Adams said, don't wear masks, save them for, mm-hmm. um, you know, first line workers. They're not effective anyway. Yeah. But there was a difference. You know, there's a now deleted tweet that, of course, got screens captured because everything on the internet is forever, where, where Jerome Adams was kind of yelling, kind of all caps, exclamation points, like, don't do this, it's obvious. And it didn't age well because it wasn't actually obvious, right? We didn't. We, like always we were having to make decisions under uncertainty and so what fauci did that i thought was so important is he said the wrong thing early uh he said look don't wear a mask it's not effective and we need to save it but what may have been true is we need you to not stock up on masks because we need to save them for first-line workers we don't actually know if they're effective, because this is a moment of radical uncertainty. There has been data. We've had evidence from decades about mass, so we weren't completely in the dark. But as time went on and he revised his stance, he's been transparent about it. And he's admitted that he got it wrong in the first judgment, right? I think that's really important because that's the deliberation that we need to do in a pluralistic democratic society where we're trading off values and trying to decide how to live right so there are cases like that where um you know it's no wonder that the guy is is a well-trusted expert he he's doing the reason in public and that's really important the tension there is
0: really really tight because at the same time i don't know is me or you all right can you hear me okay the, the tension there is Travis, now can you hear back. me? Okay. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, just a small yes, technical glitch here. Okay. I think we're back. Um, but, and I agree with you on Fauci um, and his ability to somehow communicate that science isn't always so clear and also maintain his sort of authority in the, in the moment. And, and, even under direct attack from the guy sit at the podium, the president of the United States. I and mean, that's pretty remarkable. And I'm sure we'll study that for a long time, how he pulled that off. And I think it's a lot about sort of personal charisma there that's involved too, which is also not science per se, but is a form of communication and trust building empathy. Um, but that tension about, um, wow. And I think a lot of people who study science, who do science studies or do the kind of thing I, I do in STS, um, like I feel really, Anxious right now about sort of gathering around science and saying follow the science. We're with the scientists because our job is to do exactly what you've described, which is to show—not to tear down science, but to show how science is deliberative. Science is not a monolith. Science is made up of of people, and also made up of people who don't get to participate and asking those hard questions. And it felt very—I felt very anxious saying those things. You, I mean, my whole life trained to say and th- ask those questions. All of a sudden, I'm like maybe we shouldn't we should just be quiet for a minute and just go along with whatever the public health officials say. And why would we do that? Because the fear was so acute on the other side that if you tip the balance of trust away from Fauci, that we would slip even further into a morass of infection in the United States. The stakes feel, but certainly felt in April and May of last year, so high.
1: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. you know an interesting anecdote I, I it's not like i've i've spoken to him so i don't know for sure that this is any part of the explanation but uh tony fauci is married to chris grady and christine grady is a bioethicist she's in my world right um and so you know they they're, they're part of our world uh, most of us who work, you know, in the Hopkins, NIH, Penn sort of world. So Christine Grady is the department head at the NIH Center for Bioethics. Um, so he's spent his family life having dinner table conversations, uh, almost certainly, uh, about the intersection of his world and and Chris's, right? Um, So I I don't find it too surprising that he was better at navigating this than most people are. You know, I'm married to a bench scientist, uh, an immunologist, and we've never had this sort of like shop talk at home to the degree we have the last year because, you know, she's got this huge set of important information this knowledge about how the immune system works that's you know helping our development of vaccines and whatnot Uh, and and she's out there trying to do the science right and i'm trying to know enough of those things to help guide that that middle step the inserting of the principles the guiding of practical reasoning so you better get the science right good to have those folks around but they by themselves don't get you there and so the i think the best scientists will say up front. Here's where my expertise ends, right? I can tell you that the epidemiology looks really bad. I can tell you that the infectious disease, infectious disease perspective looks really bad at point X, but that does not entail logically that you should do Y. We need something else to get us there.
0: What you've just described, Travis, is the makings of a podcast I would listen to. Uh, (laughs) Husband and wife, epidemiologists, uh, bench scientists, and bioethicists talking through the news of the day. That's something I think I'm probably not alone on that. That's something I would definitely (laughs) listen to. I want to remind everybody you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking with Travis Reeder today. Um, I want to stay with this issue of of complications around social distancing and uh, following the science. You wrote a tremendous piece for the Daily News, which appeared in, uh, back in January of, uh, excuse me, of June of 2020. Uh, and I wanna uh, ask you about it, get you to talk about it a little bit. I know it's connected to some uh, writing you're doing um, more broadly around ethics of big disasters and big risks. But in there, uh, you talked about the ethics of social distancing, so what goes into that? Uh, what kind of calculations do people make? Why do they behave in such a way that they would follow a social distance recommendation? But then the complicating issue of the social justice um, revolution that we saw in America um, in May and in June of 2020, after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, particularly. And it made me think of conversations I had back at that time. Um, For example, I talked with physician Peter Chin Hong at uh, University of California, San Francisco. And he just put it out for me in a very clear way that I had never considered before. He said, for many Americans, um, not protesting is much more dangerous than, than protesting at this time, which was a kind of utilitarianism that I hadn't really thought of before. I mean, it, it opened up a world of thinking to me that really I had never considered. Now he And he pointed out that from a social health, um, uh, social uh, from a public health perspective, um, social determinants of health perspective, uh, racism is a is a contributing factor of death. Um, and we just have to think about it that way. So uh, having that in my memory and then reading this piece that, that you wrote, I just feel like we have to dive into these kind of conversations. And you, you got us there a little bit earlier when you were talking about um, mm-hmm. kind of cost benefit, that staying home is not the healthiest path for everyone. So then it just becomes a numbers game uh, and public health officials choose the healthiest path for the greatest. Unsurprisingly, um, somehow health and racism are often not joined in American discussion. And, and that's a, a artifact of our long and torturous hit history. So, um, I don't know where to even pick this up, except just the piece itself, what inspired you to write it, but particularly that juncture where you really examined the racial justice and the social distancing part, I think is fascinating.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So thanks for asking. This is one of my favorite things to explore with people because I find it phenomenally difficult. And and so the piece was born before the, what you call the social justice revolution, right? Like there was this moment that I hope and, and kind of still believe that we're still sitting in that like, unlike past moments, we're not letting it completely go, but the summer was so acute as you say, after the killing of, of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor in particular, but of course, as this end of a string of long line of killing unarmed black people and by police. So before that, I'm sitting down and writing about the social uh, social distancing. And I'm concerned in, my, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about the drugs angle. I'm thinking about um, pain medicine, ac- uh, access to pain medication, but I'm thinking about addiction and all the challenges to recovery that we talked about. And so what I want to get across is that there's not a strict obligation to socially distance. That's the primary goal here. And a lot of people act as if there is. As a matter of fact, there were some think pieces published, um, some by philosophers, but many not, saying things like, you're morally required to socially distance, right? And so I'm trying to think about that ethics claim, like, that's my job. So are you morally required to socially distance? And here's how it intersects with a bunch of other interests that I have. I, I spent many years working on climate change ethics and climate change ethics is really hard for a bunch of reasons, but here's one. Climate change is this massive structural threat that you as an individual cannot meaningfully affect. And I mean that literally, You know, a bunch of people wanna push back and say, but, 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 you just can't. As an individual, I mean, unless you're the president or something, as an individual, there's you drive your Hummer all day, every day for the rest of your life and the environment will not register it to a degree that it changes anything about the future. The the scale here is a trillion metric tons of carbon dioxide um, emitted by humans and you, you emit just this infinitesimal fragment. Okay, so that's the structural problem. You as an individual can't actually change the future of climate change, but yet as an ethicist, uh, I think you uh, have really good reason to fight it anyway. So if you're not recycling, you're probably doing something wrong. Uh, if you're not like living various green values, that's a moral problem. That's the puzzle. So how does this apply to social distancing? Um, the, the basic idea here is that you might socially distance for a bunch of classically moral reasons um, because I to. I, I will in fact go see my grandmother who's very old and very at risk um, and so I might actually be the direct causal cause, <laughs> direct causal, the direct cause of her death, if I transmit the virus to her and she dies from it. That classic morality can handle that. But a bunch of us don't actually have good classically moral reasons or self-interested reasons, right? You know a bunch of twenty year olds that we auto those pictures of them having spring break or whatever. A bunch of them are not making a mistake in practical reasoning for themselves if they're doing the risk calculus this particular way, right? They could, in fact, have a totally reasonable algorithm that says that this is the right thing for them to do to not waste a year of their 20s. Right. So now I want to say there's a there's another reason. And this one looks a bit like the climate change one. When the White House Task Force put out its guidance, it uses this language that is exactly what I want to glow onto, which is do your part to limit the spread. And that's what we have to ask people to do with reference to climate change. We can't ask them to stop climate change. We can only ask them to do their part, right? And that's what we're asking when we're asking people to socially distance. We're saying infectious disease is this massive network of nodes. And we need to limit the nodes out there to slow the spread. And what we really want the good to be accomplished is something like a reduced R naught, right? We need a reduced uh reproductive number of the virus so that it gets below one and it slowly starts to peter out instead of spiking you can't control that by yourself you're staying home cannot get us a significantly reduced or not but you can be part of the solution that does so i think your moral reason is pretty similar to the climate change one. Oh my gosh now we're getting there finally i was concerned to say that because what i wanted to say is that that's not a classic obligation I don't think that you're doing something wrong in the same way that you ought not to go hit somebody, right? That's a harm that you can directly cause. I don't think infinitesimally contributing to a harm gets you the same moral culpability as actually going and causing the harm. And so I, I coined this term with a colleague in a journal article, contributory ethics. I think we need to think about... We, we now live in a world of globalized, uh, massive structural problems involving billions of people and infectious disease and climate change are not going to be solved by one person. So we have to think about the ethics of contributing. But mm. that means if it's not a strict obligation, I was thinking back prior to June, um, well, maybe you need to go see your recovery group. And that is a direct line to maintaining your recovery, keeping your promises to all sorts of other people. Like there are good moral reasons, not to mention self preservation reasons, to do that. And so it might defeat the kind of reason to socially distance. That was the original argument. And I was just about to finish the essay and America exploded. Right. right? right. And I realized that it would be completely irresponsible in this moment of racial reckoning to not make point of the fact of exactly what your colleague said, which by the way, I, I cite, uh, I quote Roxanne Gay in the no, piece, sure, because the, the day before, the, you know, the, the few days before I wrote, the finished revising the piece, she published in the New York Times basically saying, you all white people can't wait to get the world back to the way it was. That's what we all black people are afraid of, mm-hmm. right? And so there's more danger to not seizing this moment and trying to improve racial justice than there is to going out and risking exposure to the virus. And that's so obviously, to me, um, an implication of this sort of contributory framework. Like Nobody going out to those protests could ensure an increase in racial justice by themselves. But that reason was clearly at least as strong as the reason to say slow the spread and so the very end of this is look if you're taking all of your moral reasons seriously you might hope that there are ways to try to do both at the same time and so notice that a bunch of social justice protesters were still wearing masks which i think is such an important image because they weren't saying just because we're entitled to protests means that we can not try to promote this other social good they were trying to do it all at the same time which i think is a really amazing image of doing the hard work of moral living. Just
0: following you patiently and clearly walking us through the different chains of reasoning here. um, I realize again, the complexity of of that media and public health officials had trying to communicate with us back in that time and, and um, uh, racial justice leaders as well, because so much of the discourse had already been fracturing around this issue of how do I take an individual action to keep myself safe? So I remain self-interested, but I'm also doing that as part of a global collective action, which to, my, which to me was also pretty astounding, especially after all the doom and gloom we've heard from recent COP meetings. We'll never be able to achieve social uh, collective action of a scale, ex- ex- actually, just exactly as you said, to contribute to uh, bringing down greenhouse gases. And then the whole world, people who could do it, Stayed indoors for a couple of months, and so we saw this collective action. You know, Greta was right to a certain extent in that regard. Yeah. So, so we were already sort of trying to make sense of that, and then, as you say, we layer in this issue of you know the murder of George Floyd, which we see those who could watch it, those who watched it, as very individual, very personal, and yet somehow that has to attach to this larger social movement, which also. Is historical, so it's there's a retrospective aspect, bringing justice for those who've died in the past. We're right on next door to discussions around reparations and the ethics of that, mm-hmm. and then discussions going forward. So we're constantly trying to toggle back and forth between in, individual ethics, situational sort of family level or community level ethics, and then this, as you said, this infinitesimal problem of big problems and how do I act in the midst of those? No wonder we're confused. In our thinking. I guess my question to you in that regard is, um, how, how are people swayed in their thinking in that moment? This is a little outside of your area of research, perhaps, what I'm interested in it. you know, What kinds of messages do get through in that moment? Because, frankly, I think a lot of people who are extremely risk-averse and were following the science um, made the decision to protest mm-hmm. And so they were, and, and many self-described were people, that I'd never protested before, I'd never participated in these kinds of actions before. I did it, because it felt like the time was right, the cause was, was right, even knowing perhaps that they weren't going to end racism in America with one march. But there was, a, as you said, a, a contribution was being made. They were being part of something much bigger. So what does from your perspective, what does sway people in the midst of those
1: kind of moments? You're right. This is outside my expertise. So let me answer an adjacent question that's a little mm-hmm. more comfortable. Um, so so there are there are health communication people, right? There are people who work on um communicating and like how messages land and psychology, and um they're actually better better equipped to answer the descriptive questions of which ones will work. But I'm really interested in which uh, which way of communicating do we owe people regardless of whether they work, right? And so we go back to the conversation about, you know, transparency in our deliberation in a pluralistic democracy. and. I think that that is owed to citizens of the country, even if it's not the most effective tool to get people to agree with you, right? And so there's tension here between some kind of brute public opinion polling data uses, right? So I I work in this drug policy world adjacent to this drug policy world, and there are people kind of public health, health communications uh, intersection, who want us to use the terminology and endorse the movement that like poll test the best, right? Because they've decided ahead of time what the morally correct position is. And so now we just need to figure out how to get people there. Um, But I think in a democracy, we owe people more than that. And so um, that's the high level answer to your question that I'm interested in what we owe people and i think a lot of it has to do with transparency of thinking and clear weighting of values when we're taking their perspective into uh, account and in what ways Um, especially when we don't right so especially like if there's a position that's completely anti-masking i think we actually shouldn't take it into account at the end of the day but we need to be transparent about the way in which Mm -hmm. we heard it and responded to it the reasons for discounting and say like well, we actually still think it's okay for you to be required to wear this anywhere you go that might threaten other people, but here are the reasons, right? Um, The more kind of particular answer then is, I want us to talk about the morality of the time we live in more often. And so this language of being a part of something is what you Mm -hmm. talked about being part at the march. Mm -hmm. Um, My daughter understands that. My seven-year-old gets that it's it's important to to stand up for others to stand in solidarity to be part of things it's not like it's a crazy notion but it actually gets left out of some of our kind of most public ethics and policy conversations it's not the kind of classic kantian or utilitarian mm-hmm. reasoning mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's more nuanced and so i want us i want us to talk about contributions i want us to learn from this i think the the optimistic side of me which My friends and colleagues will tell me isn't always there. But the optimistic side of me will say that maybe we'll do better with climate change for having survived COVID. Like Mm -hmm. it was an opportunity for us to learn what it looks like to effectively be part of something bigger than ourselves for the moral good, right? As you're talking about that, I'm thinking
0: even about the way that I was raised to, to think about politics and about voting. You know, sort of natural question you ask when you're a first time voter: Why would my vote matter? These tens of millions of people are going to vote. How can I possibly? um, And maybe we don't ever get an answer to that. Usually, the answer is one of two: It's your duty, or you have to do that, or your party won't win. They're very, they're very duty bound, or they're very self interested in their in their framing. But I got to give some props here to my to my stepfather, Paul Vieira, who who often treated you know, election day as a sort of like a sacred day. And he and I have, there's an enormous amount of daylight there in our political views. We do not view the world politically similarly, but he did drive home the point to me at an early age that, and I wouldn't have thought about it the way you're describing it, but that contribution had its own value. And in fact, that value perhaps outweighs your candidate winning. Now, there's some privilege in that too perhaps because i think for some people the outcome of an election can be a life and death issue depending on what policies we're talking about so i don't want to be too soft on that but i do think it's important to take into account the participation aspect has its own domain in a democratic society which is intensely valuable
1: i think you are exactly right and as my thinking on this topic of being an individual a tiny tiny individual in this massive world, Um, as that has become my dominant frame in thinking about ethics, I have begun to take voting much more sacredly than I did before. Um, Over the last 10 years about, I kind of watched the ways in which I voted and the kind of excitement that I had. Um, And I, I remember the acute excitement of 2008 of voting for the first Black president of the United States but I didn't yet have a sense of how sacred my being part of that was. And I, that's the way I feel now. So I take my daughter to vote with me every time I go, because uh, my, my partner's not a citizen, so she doesn't get to vote. So it's, it's something that I take my daughter to do. And, um, and every time we do it, every primary, every general election, every special election, every time we go, we talk about the idea that we're getting to be part of a process that is really morally important that everybody's voice gets to be heard. Now, I don't yet tell my seven-year-old that the Electoral College spoils some of that "everybody gets to be heard" bit, but um, but yeah, it, it does feel very special to me for this reason.
0: Just want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID calls, and we're just up on time here. In fact, I've kept Travis to Reader too long, but the conversation has been so exciting and i've learned so much um that i couldn't i couldn't stop and if you can tolerate it i have one more little question travis um just it's kind of circling back something we're talking about earlier um uh, around uh, addiction and dependency and but particularly around stigma and as i was looking um for i read an obituary at the beginning of every code calls and so i spent some time um Uh, Thinking about that and looking for obituaries for this discussion, and um, and I came actually across a pretty fascinating literature around um, the problem of writing obituaries for Mm -hmm. people who die uh, of drug overdoses, and it really brought home to me the fan. I don't follow this nearly as closely as you do, but the sort of ongoing struggles around even the use of the term victim, the use of the term disease describing opioids, I've described it as a disaster in my work. And people have called me up on that said, how can that be a disaster that doesn't fit? That's not a natural disaster doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we haven't advanced our thinking yet to encompass um, these problems. And that that really came home to me when I read this piece that talked about the problem of writing a drug overdose obituary, which I had never really thought of before. And I guess it just circles back even to catch some of what we were just talking about. Um, How are we going to advance these conversations in American society? It feels like the kind of work you're doing and bioethical reasoning has to be part of it, Um, but we can barely make time to even just talk about big ticket public policy items, not to mention the kind of ethical reasoning that you've been walking us through today. So I guess it's kind of an open-ended question as we close, but how do we get this, more of this kind of deliberation into the public square? That's my concern.
1: What a, what a great question and a great way to bring a bunch of threads together. Um, I spent, so my book In Pain came out in 20, summer 2019. And so I had, uh, Gosh, all the years, all the time, it all runs together. You know, I had the better part of a year where I was just traveling constantly, um, giving talks. And one of the things that I felt really privileged to do is um, often when I would go and give a a public lecture or give a a medical conference lecture, there would also be a group of um, family members of people who lost someone to overdose or, um, you know, a recovery group, somebody who wanted to just chat to talk, they weren't asking me to come and give an academic lecture, but maybe they'd read the book and we'd talk about it or, or whatnot. And I felt very privileged to have a lot of these conversations. Um, but one of the things that almost every time, and this also happened at all the libraries and the bookstores, right? Those are such different events from talking to neuroscientists, right? Like you, you go to the bookstore and give a talk and I can't tell you the percentage so high of the number of those that ended with somebody saying, I'm, I'm compelled or I'm heartbroken or, you know, whatever, but what can I do? Mm -hmm. Right. So here's that same hopelessness in the context of drug addiction and the overdose crisis that a lot of people express in reference to climate change or structural racism, right? Mm -hmm. It's so big. I'm, I'm impotent causally, right? I can't make a difference. And so bring it home here. My answer to them, I kind of developed a spiel, and it was talk about it and destigmatize. So like, what's the thing that's actually killing people? Well, people say drugs. Um, If they're kind of already inducted into a certain world of policy and, and harm reduction, they might say the criminalization of drugs, right? But at root here, it's the stigmatization of drugs. And here's the the kind of final, final message I'll leave you with. 80, probably by the time we get all of the counting done, 86,000 people will have died in the year uh, ending in July of um, 2020. We have a long lag in counting deaths, 86,000 which is a jump from 71,000 people dying in 2019, last year that we have complete data for. It's catastrophic. And so people say, boy, there must be a real problem with the dangerous drug. And partially they're right. The drug supply on the street is, is tainted with illicit fentanyl and it's chemical analogs. It's hard to dose, it's incredibly potent, but that's still not what's killing most of these people. Because here's the thing, If everyone who was using drugs that might be laced with fentanyl was doing it in a public place uh, with loved ones, everyone was carrying Narcan, they weren't afraid to call the ambulance. If all of those things were happening, very, very few of those people would have actually died. There's this crazy thing about drug overdose, which is that we as a society, we and our policies are basically choosing to let them happen, mm-hmm. and that's, that makes my head explode every time I think about it, right? Narcan is a magic drug, naloxone, right? Naloxone, right. you squirt it up someone's nose if they're in the process of overdosing from an opioid. You know, unfortunately, we don't have Narcan for, for stimulants, but from an opioid, you squirt it up their nose, knocks the opioids out of their brain receptors. If they're not already gone, a few seconds or a few minutes, <gasps> come back, in massive withdrawal very unhappy with you but alive crucially sure. alive of course we can also breathe for people etc people don't have to die especially from an opioid overdose but from most drug overdoses the reason they die is because they're using alone. they're hiding from police they're afraid to call for help people aren't carrying narcan we push them into the corners of society because we hate drugs and by extension, people who use drugs so much that we want to throw them in jail and we don't want to see them. Mm. And that's the thing that would actually fix our drug overdose crisis. If we just stop, if we just acknowledged a, what I think is an obvious base truth, which is that drugs aren't bad or evil. They're tools that can be misused in ways that have really harmful effects. And that if, if we stopped stigmatizing them and then could stop criminalizing them, because we criminalize them for very, for very specific reasons, right? Um, then we could save all of our loved ones. We could save our children and our siblings and our parents. Um, so yeah, the, the answer that I give to people is talk about it. Um, if you're ready to share stories, um, but the contribution that you can make to this massive structural problem is to be a cog, to be a node in the network, that destigmatizes drugs, drug use, and the people who use drugs. I want to remind everyone you've
0: been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls live every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. And I want to thank my guest today, Travis Reeder, um, for a phenomenal conversation and all the writing that you're doing and can't wait to see your your next project. Thanks, Travis, for this time today.
1: Thank you for having me. This really great, wide-ranging conversation.
0: Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.